You can pray until you faint. But if you don't get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. And it's no need of running and no need of saying, Honey, I'm not going to get in the mess. Welcome to Black Power Talks. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Dexter M. Lemwingu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. Today on Black Power Talks, we begin part two of our discussion we will be having throughout 2022 on reparations. This series of episodes salutes the 40th anniversary of the International Tribunal on Reparations for Black People in the U.S., held in Brooklyn, New York, in November 1982. That year, the African People's Socialist Party formed the African National Reparations Organization. ANRO took the reparations demand directly to the African working class. For 12 years, ANRO held subsequent reparations tribunals. Most of the well-known reparations activists today gained their notoriety from their direct or indirect relationship to ANRO. In Our Case for Reparations, written in 1982, the African People's Socialist Party noted, the demand for reparations is a demand of the African working class. It does not humbly plead to the reasonableness of the boss in a way that presupposes the right of the boss to exist. It does not ask for a few more crumbs for the handful while the masses are starving. It ruthlessly targets the very foundation of this system and demands back what is justly ours. The reparations demand has become so commonplace that it's even permeated the colonial superstructure popular media. We'll get into this later on Black Power Talks, but if you are like me, you've been following the highly anticipated season three of Atlanta on FX starring Donald Childish Gambino Glover. The question of reparations has been present all throughout this season. Importantly, Atlanta has embraced what's very close to an African internationalist position on reparations and the question of colonial capitalism. Season three opens up with a discussion of how a predominantly white town was literally built on top of an African town. Another episode exposes colonial investments in South Africa as a source of a white philanthropist wealth. The point is made clearly in the season that charity is not reparations. As well, the episode called The Big Payback stirred up some controversy by boldly declaring that all white people, even individual white people, 
old reparations. This is not the liberal left interpretation of reparations. The only source of this argument has been the African People's Socialist Party and African internationalist organizations. On part two of our reparation series, we lift up a leader in the struggle for reparations to African people, Queen Mother Audley Moore. Elements of the reparations demand go back to the 19th century. Yet in 1957, Queen Mother Moore gave the struggle an important mass character and organization with her Universal Association of Ethiopian Women in New Orleans. Queen Mother Moore and the UAEW took their reparations demand to the United Nations. The UN shot it down, but the struggle did not die. She passed the legacy of her work on to ANRO and the Uhuru Movement. To discuss Queen Mother Moore with us today, we are joined by Dr. Tiffany Caesar the Margaret Walker Center Visiting Mellon Scholar and History Lecturer at Jackson State University in Mississippi. Dr. Tiffany gained her PhD in African-American and African Studies at Michigan State University in 2019, where she completed the research project entitled African Women's Stories, Mothering and African-Centered Educational Leadership. Tiffany's research African Women's Stories from the United States to South Africa, or Occupied Azania. Her recent project is a public history project on Queen Mother Moore in New Iberia, Louisiana. Good morning. Glad to have you on as with us. Good morning, Uhuru. Thank you Uhuru. so much. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Uhuru, Uhuru. Thanks, thanks. So welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, uh, Tiffany. And uh, we salute your research, especially your upcoming public history project on Queen Mother Moore. So let us know, well, what is this project that you have organized? Thank you so much. And um, I guess um, the first thing I will, will kind of shout that program out. Um, the Queen of the Moore Legacy Symposium and Celebration is the first event in honor of Ali Moore, Queen Mother Moore in New Iberia on Wednesday, July 27th, 2022. Queen Mother Moore was born in New Iberia on July 27th in 1898. Though there has been an article written about her in New Iberia and conversations around her in New Iberia, um, this is the first time we're going to do an exclusive event to honor her contribution um, because she was born there. She is considered the mother of the Pan-African Liberation Movement and significant for including women into Black national building initiatives in the 20th century. The symposium will begin with a live panel discussion with leading scholars who are working with Queen Mother Moore right now or who have worked with her in the past. Some of those scholars who will be participating in a panel on July 27th is Dr. Ashley Farmer, um, who is an associate professor of African and African Diaspora Studies and History at the University of Texas, Austin. She is currently finishing up a biography, an extensive biography on Queen Mother Moore. We also have Dr. Akinyele Moja, who's the professor of African-American studies at Georgia State University. Um, he has wrote extensively about Queen Mother Moore. She was also his mentor 
And last we have, last but not least, we have Dr. Cassie S. Turnipseed, who is an assistant professor of history at Jackson State University, who has done a lot of work and research surrounding the preservation of African-Americans in the South, including Fannie Lou Hamer. And so they all will be coming to New Iberia on July 27th to celebrate the legacy of Queen Mother Moore. In addition, we're gonna have several community events happening that day to really further saturate the community with her legacy and the role of African-Americans in New Iberia. And so this program is sponsored by the Iberia African-American Historical Society. I am working with them. I helped them write a grant for this particular event. And the Iberia African-American Historical Society is a nonprofit organization incorporated by the state of Louisiana in August 27th. And now in August 2017, and it was created by Dr. Phoebe Hayes. And the purpose of the Iberia African American Historical Society is to foster the appreciation, understanding, and teaching of the long, rich, and unique history of African Americans in Iberia Parish. And one of the things that they've been really big on is creating markers to um, really preserve the legacy of Queen Mother Moore. I mean, preserve the legacy of Blacks in New Iberia. The last marker reveal was for Howell Institute, which was the first Black school in New Iberia, and also significant because Booker T. Washington came and spoke there when he was touring the South. So um, that is uh, my work that I'm currently working on with the Iberia African American Historical Society in the preservation of the legacy of Queen Mother Moore. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Now, let us know, because Queen Mother Moore is a person that for long has been sort of like, if you know, you know, but she's had such a such an important uh, legacy. What drew you to study Queen Mother Moore? Thank you so much for that question. I have heard of Queen Mother Moore throughout my research. However, um, it was not until I moved to New Iberia a couple of years ago that I really began to, I would say, merge myself into her story. Now, my my work, I look at um, Africana transnational women and women who participated in multiple Black radical movements So including Queen Mother Moore into my cohort of women that I'm already looking at, like Phyllis Dandala and um, Margaret Walker, it was easy, you know, when I was really able to follow her story across countries, right, in her activism during the African liberation movement. And so basically... I was I was teaching I was teaching fifth grade English in New Iberia and I wanted to do public history projects with my students because as you know the curriculum is not really infused with cultural heritage and history for people of color so I started to really like go around New Iberia look at the markers and bring them back to my students there was a store next to 
the school I was working at, which was Johnston Hopkins, called the Berry Fresh Market, that had a picture of Queen Mother Moore hanging, um, hanging in the store. And whenever I went in there, the the store, the store manager would say, hey, do you know Queen Mother Moore? Right. And so it was always this question. And then there was always this followed like conversation, you know, about Queen Mother Moore. And so by the end of my tenure in New Iberia, I had connected with the Iberia African-American Historical Society. And I wanted to do something for my students because I was I was going back to higher ed and they wanted to say they wanted to see how I could help them. And so one of the things they said I can do was write a grant and we can do a program. And they gave me a list of all these people in New Iberia and things that happened. Um, but when they said, you know, you can um, assist us with Queen Mother Moore, when her name popped up, it was instantaneously that I knew that that was the project that I wanted to work on because of her magnitude and what she had contributed to the world, right, in her Pan-African efforts. So even though, you know, I had heard her name, it was actually when I was teaching in, in New Iberia that I began to really follow her story and begin my preservation efforts with the Iberia African-American Historical Society. And so I would like to say that the program is two parts. So the first part begins in July 27th, in which we're going to have a series of programs, including the panel of scholars. But we're hoping in the fall is to create a marker for Queen Mother Moore and to put that marker in front of um, the Barry um the, the Berry Fresh Market and um, allow people to to engage with that history in a very physical way. So um, that's kind of how I began to work with her. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, um, that history and just this work that you're doing, um, you know, just to you know, echo what um what, what Dr. Matsumella said. Um, oftentimes when it comes to Queen Mother Moore, it's been she's been this sort of you know if you know you know figure. So I just really want to salute you and the work you do to bring her out of this, for lack of better words, um obscurity and really highlight all the the powerful work she did. So yeah, I just really want to salute you for that. Um, you know, Queen Mother Moore. I know she was an early uh, member of the Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, following her move to New Orleans. Uh, recent studies have shown that the UNIA presence in the U.S. South, namely New Orleans, was very strong, a lot stronger than previously considered. Why have you found that the UNIA has such a strong presence in New Orleans and the surrounding areas? Thank you so much for, for that question. I know that Dr. Farmer wrote about this um, in her extensive research on women Winter, women-centered Pan-Africanism and um, just women's influence on particularly the UNIA and other Pan-African organization. And the UNI in New Orleans was created by a woman named Aletta Robertson. And um, it was created in the South in 1920. It quickly grew into one of the largest country, one of the largest UNIA uh, memberships in the world 
And um, it was stated that over 4,000 people were enrolled, like in this particular, in, in, the UI, in the UNIA during this first year. And former McDuffie and other scholars write about people just being really drawn to this concept of freedom and freedom, not just for black people in the United States, but freedom around the world, in Africa, in the Caribbean, and this ideal of, of collectivity. And one of more quotes states that when she, because Queen Mother Moore meets Garvey, or she, she interacts with Garvey in 1920, and there's this story that, that is that's frequently told that a lot of scholars talk about is that when Garvey was, when, when the police knew that Garvey was coming to New Orleans in 1920, um, when he came, they arrested him the first day and that the black people organized themselves so much and caused so much um, ruckus, if you would say, to let him out um, that he was released. And so even, even though he was going to try to um, speak again, the police came to the speaking engagement and tried to threaten him. However, the black people in the audience had guns and weapons to protect him so that he can speak without harm. And um, Queen Mother Moore recounts this story and, and how the audience, even though they were, you know, surrounded by police, how the audience says, speak, Garvey, speak. And she says that she had two guns in her pocket. And so in that particular statement, what you what you see is something that many people don't talk about overtly sometimes when they think about the South. Um, but the South had a, a space, had a space of, it was a space that was like fueling with radical black politics, right? And I, I do feel that at times when we talk about the South, it's really kind of covered by the antebellum South, like, you know, all black people were slaves, it was so hard. Um, and not that that wasn't true, but there was also this radical um, Pan-African front that was happening in the South, especially in places like New Orleans that Queen Mother Moore was raised in. And so I, I, I would like to just talk a little bit about like some of the past radical things um, or historical things that contributed for New Orleans being a place where people of, of, of resistance, African people of resistance could live. So, um, Please do. Or, go ahead. Yes. No, I said, please do. Go on. So, yeah, New Orleans, you know, was a major was a major hub, um, a major hub of slavery. And there were horrendous, um, horrendous laws that were created. Right. Just like in every other state or city in the right. U.S., for example, like the Cold Noir in seventeen twenty four. Well, what I want to say about the Cold War was that in 1724, Cold War gave give people the the right to rest, give black people the the right to to rest. So, in addition to these harsh laws that are are happening um, in in the U.S., Louisiana has a Cold War saying that okay, on on Sunday people can rest, right? Um, and what what you have on this rest day is 
people gathering and they're gathering in places like Congo Square um, that a lot of people talk about when they talk about New Orleans. And what I do believe is that this gathering was not just a, a gathering of oh, we're just going to chill and hang out. This was a gathering where people got together and they 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 strategized, they politicized. So what the law thought was a rest day became a day of action for, for people who were enslaved. Then there was also the 1811 slave revolt that happened, right? In which more than 500 enslaved people killed their captors and marched to take New Orleans. Now, the person who was um, in charge of this was a Haitian enslaved man named Charles Deslandes. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. And he was mutilated after that. But what I'm trying to say is that there was a liberation spirit in New Orleans due to the people who were living there, right? Doing, when, when the French Revolution occurred, a lot of Haitian immigrants and Haitian slaves and colonialists came to New Orleans, which also stared the, stared the pot, right? Um, and so in New Orleans, the South of the South, you also have this radicalism that is coinciding with this oppression that is happening due to things based on the, the racism and violence in the United States. So New Orleans, you have two things happening at once, right? You, you have the overt discrimination, the killing, the lynching, the overt laws that are, are saying what Black people can and cannot do. At the same time, you have a radical um, a radical space in which you have free Black people, you have Haitian people, you have organizations like the UNIA setting root there. And so um, I, I do believe that New Orleans just was a unique space like that, that many spaces could not coexist like New Orleans did. Uhuru, I really appreciate that because I like the way that you move from the cultural resistance to the militant resistance to slavery and the overall colonial domination of African people. You know, oftentimes we see, you know, Congo Square being used, of course, to support you know, the legacy of Mardi Gras and things like that. But here you are tying Congo Square directly to the resistance um, of people in New Orleans and the surrounding areas and stuff like that, because, you know, this is, uh, so, so I really um, appreciate that. Uh, just a side question. Uh, have you ever heard of the story of Robert Charles? Because I know that was in like 1900 in which Robert Charles was an African worker in New Orleans who resisted police oppression and police occupation of the African community with force. He took out at least like six cops, if I'm correct, but he was lynched as a result of it. And after he was lynched, the African community rose up uh, in New Orleans. So this would have been, uh, like I said, not too long after Queen Mother Moore was born. And the reason why I say this in relation to Queen Mother Moore be is because Ida B. Wells wrote a pamphlet in defense of Robert Charles and even in defense of armed resistance, which really 
underscores that history of resistance in the South that has been uh, glossed over and even hidden and stuff like that. And also, I think it really rises up uh, to the level of really the revolutionary leadership of people like Ida B. Wells and Queen Mother Moore, people whom, you know, have, like I said, you know, uh, I think Ida B. Wells for sure has been sort of folded into something that she uh, herself was not. But have you ever heard of that um, Robert Charles incident? Thank you so much. This is the first time that I've, I've heard of his name, but I know that there are so many more. So I appreciate you putting me on to his story. It reminds me of um, something else that they they talk about, which is also um, the massacre that happened in Freetown, um, Louisiana. So what I gather is, is that there are so many stories of, of radical resistance, right? that a care that also needs to be exposed and revealed. And that's why I appreciate wonderful shows like this for, for having the carriage to say, this is what really happened. You know, um, people in the South were not just passive in what was happening to them as it concerned their liberty, but you have people like Queen Mother Moore, like Charles, and like so many other who were actively physically resistant, resisting oppression. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And what's so important too is I think, you know, we forget that, I think a lot of people forget that people like Queen Mother Moore were not uh, distantly removed from the uh, transatlantic slave trade, you know, and so many people coming here from uh, Africa. You know, my family is from Northwest Louisiana, so it's a little different uh, up there. But nevertheless, we know for a fact that my great grandmother, who passed away in 2006, December 2006, her grandmother was brought on a slave ship. Uh, and it was very clear, you know, I think throughout the South uh, that Africans in multiple ways held on to uh, their African uh, identity. And, and and part of this was that identity of resistance, right? So a lot of titans in the African liberation struggle came from Louisiana. You know, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, H. Rat Brown, Fred Hampton. Uh, they all either were born in Louisiana or had Louisiana roots. But it goes a lot farther back than that, as you've noted, right? New Iberia and Iberia Parish are in the vicinity of the German coast, uh, which was the site of the 1811 uprising led by Charles de Slans, as you talked about. So are you able to tell us a little bit more? How do you think that Queen Mother Moore built on that legacy uh, of resistance, um, you know, from the 19... Uh, 10s and 20s uh, on forward uh, throughout the South. I know she was a part of that group, you know, the Sojourners for Truth and Justice, if I'm correct, uh, is the name of them and stuff like that. And there's just so many ways to which she held on to uh, the, le- uh, you know, this legacy of resistance. And we'll talk a little bit more about her work with Garvey and holding on the legacy of Garvey and stuff like that. But how do you think she just builds on on, on this legacy uh, there in um, Southern Louisiana and, you know, uh, what should people, what lessons, important lessons do you hope people learn about Queen Mother Moore and her time in Southern Louisiana? 
Thank you so much. I think that as, as we are discussing what we are able to share is that Louisiana was a space of, of radical action when it came to the, the overall African liberation movement prior to organizations like the UNIA, right? And so I feel that Queen Mother Moore is just really um, a, um, an icon of her time. She is raised, you know, she grows up in, in, in New Orleans. Um, she was born in, in New Iberia after her parents passed away. Her and her sister go to New Orleans to find a job, um, to support themselves. And they are um, immersed in this very unique city in which they're able to express their, um, their, express their, their discontent with being um, second-class citizens um, in, in a space um, that um, overtly kills you um, if you try to step outside the confines of, of what a Black person is and just kill you because you are Black. And so I feel that Queen Mother Moore displays a, um, a history of Louisiana um, that is uh, loud, right? that is a part of the slave revolts, the multiple slave revolts that are happening. And she continues, right? She continues with her creation of organizations like the University Association of Ethiopian Women, um, an organization that she created that parallel with principles of Garveyism and Pan-Africanism. Um, it was through that particular organization that she took up the initiative to fight against lynching um, just like Ida B. Wells, she um, also um, promotes her ideals surrounding reparations in this in this particular organization. Um, she goes on to build multiple organizations, being a founder member of the Republic of New Africa, and so many more um, radical organization that was about creating Black sovereignty. Um, and she just really embodies um, that, that Louisiana history of uh, being self-determined um, and global and understanding the need to organize, right? Um, though we do know her name, I think it's also important to emphasize that she worked within organizations. She was not alone, right? It was in these particular organizations um, that she was able to um, achieve some of these wonderful things that she has achieved when we think of reparation, education, and um, the role of women in, in political organizing. Yeah, yeah, I really want to thank you for that, especially understand that long legacy. I mean, the truth is that really until her last days, Queen Mother Moore was a stalwart person who really uplifted Garvey. And even as you see her moving through all these different organizations that she was a part of, be it the RNA or she was a part of the Communist Party USA, uh, RNA meaning Republic of New Africa, and so many other things. Her goal was to forward this question of African independence, 
of Garvey to keep the legacy of Garvey around. I know that she had been a part of the Communist Party USA, but she also left the Communist Party USA because she identified that they had abandoned the question of African uh, independence, uh, what people might refer to as the national question. So she was always centering the project of Garvey, even as she moved forward. And we know that for those dozen years or so, she was directly involved with the African National Reparations Organization. So we really do want to lift up Queen Mother Moore as her and her legacy as being a uh, a stalwart African internationalist and and a uh, a, a central figure to uh, the struggle for African uh, liberation. So uh, thank you for that, Tiffany. Thank you for that. You are listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. And this is episode two of a year-long series on reparations. Today, we are discussing the life of Queen Mother Moore, a leader in the reparations movement with Professor Tiffany Caesar. So, Professor, uh, colonialism has stolen the ability of African people to produce life and value for ourselves. Central to this process has been the unmothering of African women. Much of your research centers on the importance of motherhood to African liberation and independence. We also have Mother's Day coming up. I mean, in the context of all of this, can you explain this to us, York? Thank you so much. I would say at the root of Black women activism, the women that I look at is they are physical mothers. They mm-hmm. have children. They have families. Mm-hmm. And there is a, a instinctual need to protect. Right. Right. And so at the... At the at the basic level, I'm going to protect my child by any means necessary. And this belief that raising a family and children in the USA, um, a very overtly racist and violent society is the most radical thing I can do. So what do I have to do to protect mine? Right. Um, So I would say that mothering, I look at mothering as a political ideology and you will find that a lot of black women activists have used mothering as a form of black uplift. And this ideal of taking the nurturing aspect of a mother and using it not just for your immediate family, but extending it, right, to the community, to the world, right? Uh, like Queen Mother Moore did, right? She, um, she learns about these particular issues that are happening. She's politicized. She, she gets in the organization, um, she starts locally and then she expands, right? Or some other women like Phyllis Dundala, who I, I look at, who's a, a South African um, anti-apartheid activist and writer. Um, she gets into the Bantu education movement because mm. she has children in South Africa and she's like, hey, you know, 
I want my children to have a quality education. And I do not agree with these laws that will provide my children with inferior education because of the color of their skin. And so she starts there and then um, expands into critiquing the, the, the system of apartheid entirely and how it has um, how it had an impact on women and children. So at the core, and I think that's with any activist, right? At the core, there has to be something personal that brings you in to your role. And so um, in addition to that, I would like to just say that my research, my original research <laughs> uh, was, was looking at Black women who owned and operated African-centered institutions. And one of the women I look at is Makini Chimaney, and she created three three to four schools in Africa, along with her husband, Mr. Jukum Chimaney, because of this ideal that when she went to Africa, her husband's from Cameroon, um, she realized, and she's from Houston, Texas, when she went to Cameroon, she saw that the, the school system still had a colonial curriculum, and she was raised in Houston, Texas, um, during a time period in which you know, Black power was very much so um, relevant. And um, she saw Black people organizing. She saw people creating schools. And so she took that same um, um, that, that, that same process with her to Africa. And she created three schools with her husband to, to fight against the, the, the racist front in the education system. And so um, just to go along with that. Um, and she was also part of the All African Revolutionary Party, right? But there was this, this ideal that, hey, my children needs, they need a quality of education. And I, and I would like to say that it's not all women's point of entrance into political spaces. It's not always like that. But for these particular Africana transnational women I look at, um, being a mother most of them are mothers. Being a mother is something that they take very seriously. And understanding that motherhood is an extension to, um, is a part of their, their political identity. So what I do for my children, I do for all. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Huru, thanks for that, because I really appreciate the way in which you focus on pedagogy and teaching as a way through which some of these African women and African mothers uh, make their impact in the African liberation struggle. And this is very important to me because of the fact that I think that this really allows for a crucial intervention that you bring in and allows us also to see Queen Mother Moore as a teacher of sorts as well, even and even these political institutions through which she participates in and founds as, you know, a, a revolutionary form of history making, right? I mean, the way through which we really take back our own existence and counter-colonialism is to uh, produce history for ourselves, produce and reproduce history uh, for, for ourselves. And mothering is uh, central to that. You know, Queen Mother Moore has been described as the matriarch of the African liberation movement in the United States. How does understanding Queen Mother Moore in this way challenge 
colonial and even normative notions of mothering. Why is this an important concept for us to really understand? Thank you so much. I think traditionally, when we think of colonialism and Western ideology, that it is um, it's boiling in patriarchy, right? And um, just this this very, um, I guess, linear ideal of the role of the women. And I would like to say um, in, in Black liberation spaces, there's also that issue too at times. However, what the space, what, what, what the understanding of is that in most African communities, global African communities, a mother is, is, is held, um, held at a very top level, you know, in the family. And, and not just a mother, but the role of the woman is, is a very important thing. And so when a woman contributes to society, right, and in addition, you know, have children, th there's this ideal of um, lineage, right? Lineage is being passed, history is being passed, generations are being creating, created out of the womb, and, you know, so like when we think of this, this particular ideal of, of Mother Africa, right, what does that mean? Um, we, we take it um, figuratively and we can take it for what it is. And it's this, this particular ideal of, I just, I just feel that this, this um, the power of a woman to reproduce, right? And not just to reproduce babies, right? But reproduce political ideologies, reproduce nations, reproduce theories in that particular sense. And so when we think of mothering, it's this ideal of nurturing and, and honing and, 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 and catering and caring for something that's important. And particularly for people like Queen Mother Moore, the liberation of all African people were important. So she nurtured that. She nurtured that with her whole life. Oh, yeah, I really, really appreciate that. And, you know, I really uh, uplift uh, Queen Mother Moore in this 40th anniversary of the Reparations Tribunal with upcoming Mother's Day and just really salute all the work that uh, Queen Mother Moore um, gave and really salute your research because it really is uh, bringing this history and giving it back to the people. That's really, really the importance of what some people call public history. Other people will call it popular history and all this other stuff. But the truth is that, as we know, African history, the Africana studies or whatever it is, it began, it didn't begin in some uh, Ivy League institution in some ivory tower or something like that. It began as African people documenting our stories and giving it back to the people uh, in opposition to the colonial domination and enslavement of African people and stuff like that. So I really uh, see your work uh, in that light. So thanks very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to appreciate you as well, Professor. Um, you know, just you know what you said also, just as far as uh, just emphasizing just the role of African women as um you know as as, as thinkers as well um you know in this African liberation struggle it actually um brings you to a quote 
uh, from, uh, I believe it's a, it's a 14 point platform, the African People's Socialist Party, um, the position on the, the role of African women. But um, the quote is, we believe that a fundamental test of the progressive or revolutionary character of any organization, party, movement or society is its commitment confirmed in practice to the destruction of the special oppression of women and the elevation of women to the rightful places, equal partners and leaders in the forward motion of the development of human society and as leaders, makers, and shapers of human history. So uh, what you said really brought that quote to mind. So I just really want to appreciate all the work that you do. And uh, can you speak a little more on your um, your upcoming event? You know, where can we find more information on it? How can we get involved? Um, thank you so much. Um, again, I, I just want to shout out the Iberia African-American Historical Society um, for, for taking up the, the initiative, the wonderful initiative to honor Queen Mother Moore, um, I would like to thank Mr. Carl Cooper for being um, an advocate for the preservation of radical Black history in New Iberia and um, creating spaces and managing spaces like the DeBerry Fresh Market, which is um, um, a space that um, provides fresh food to the community. Um, I want to um, just really shout out Mr. Reedham, who is a um, historian of Black New Iberian history, um, and everybody else, my students at Johnston Hopkins Elementary, Dr. Caesar is still working for you all. <laughs> um, but again, July 27th, please, please just mark your calendar. If you've never been to New Iberia, Louisiana, if you've never been to Louisiana, if you've never been to the South, this is a really great opportunity. Again, we're going to have a wonderful panel with leading scholars on Queen Mother Moore. We have Dr. Ashley Farmer, Dr. Akineli Umoji, Dr. Cassie Turnipseed. Um, we're going to have wonderful discussions with community leaders like um, Mr. Carl Cooper, who's going to be talking about Black businesses and um, Black organizations within New Iberia. We're going to have me. I'm going to be um, sharing a, a children's story that I'm writing on Queen Mother Moore. Um, there's going to be opportunities to tour New Iberia Black cultural heritage sites and like artifacts and things of that nature. Um, and you can get exposed to the Acadiana region, which is like no other. So um, come, it's free, it's free, right? Um, July 27th, 2022. And you can go to the Iberia African American Historical Society website if you just put in Iberia Historical um, the um, the Iberia African American Historical Society website. Um, it should pop up there on Facebook. Um, I can also give you all information that you all can share with your um, audience, your um, constituents, and whoever else you feel will be interested. But we have about three months left, and we just really want to promote, promote, promote. And we're welcome to any ideals um, as far as expanding and, and preserving um, this particular narrative and experience of this global, right, global mover and shaker, Queen Mother Moore. Thank you. Thank you. So that's July 27th. Everybody mark your calendars. Um, so, Professor, are there any any final points you want to make? Any anything you really want to emphasize for our listeners to understand about the importance of Queen Mother Moore? You know, thank you so much for that. Um, 
Professor Odom, I know you've been to Louisiana, so you know these small rural areas. And so it's something about people seeing where she come from to where she went, right? Um, from New Iberia, New Orleans, Harlem, to Ghana, to South Africa, and to other countries. And so what I want people to know is that you should not be limited by where you where you're from, that you should allow your space, your neighborhood and your community to fuel you to attain higher, um, that you should always think bigger. Right. Don't let your 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 space hold you cap captive to what your your life mission is. Right. She was sparked by listening to Garvey speak in New Orleans when she was 22 years old. Right. And so to the youth that that are listening to this, this is your time. Right. We, we, we see that happening with the, the the Black Lives Matter movement, how youth are are taking just taking the torch. But it, she was also very much so intergenerational. Right. Um, because the UNIA was a space that had, you know, people from different ages, um, just like the Black Lives Matter movement. And so what I like about Queen Mother Moore was she was a youth when she really began her activist life. But then as she got older, she became a mentor and helped the younger activists organize themselves and help them to, to understand political ideologies and theories. And this is also to say there's a space for us all, <laughs> you know, whether we're going to be on the front line or whether we're going to be um, a space for um, conversation on how to strategize. There's a space for us all. And um, just to continue the effort of fighting for all African liberations. Um, so that that will be my my last my last like major comment. And also to thank both of you all for providing a space, a very important space to have these critical discussions as we witness things that are happening currently. It's, it's so important to have spaces like this that tell the truth and encourage people to seek out the truth and knowledge. Thank you. Uhuru, thank you. Thank you. Uhuru, yeah, thank you, Professor. Thanks for coming on with us today. You have been listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today, we discussed the life of Queen Mother Audley Moore. You can find more information about the upcoming celebration of Queen Mother Moore at the Iberian African-American Historical Society website, IAAHS.org. That's IAAHS.org. Our theme song, Get Up and Do Something, was written and performed by Leaky Angoma. Thanks to the Black Power Talks production, research, and promotions team, including Jaza Robinson, Empress Livewire, and Ahipsa Panda. Uhuru. You can pray until you faint, but if you don't get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. And there's no need of running and no need of saying, honey, I'm not going to get in the mess.